We welcome all of you to Bible study this morning as we continue the study of Colossians. And uh, we welcome all those on our KFUO listening audience. Um, some more comments about chapter 1 before we go to chapter 2. Last week, we covered verses 15 to 20. And it talked about that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, and he is preeminent over all things. Very exalted language about Jesus Christ. You should know that that section, those five verses, are considered by many to be an early Christian hymn that was actually sung in the early church. Uh, we know this is also true about uh, verses in Philippians chapter 2. But here, uh, those verses uh, were actually considered a Christian hymn. Some believe Paul wrote it. Some believe it was by another author. But just so you know that, it's, it's, it's mentioned in many commentaries that this may be a hymn. The second thing I wanted to talk about was now that verse that we discussed, verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. When you are baptized and are a Christian, it does not mean that your life is going to be easy. There are three words that are many times applied to being a Christian and your Christian vocation. Oratio, meditatio, and tentatio. Oratio, prayer. Meditatio, studying God's Word. Tentatio, the struggle. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about the struggle? Well, it's different in every vocation. Mark Bender suggested last week that it's tentatio when a parent is trying to raise their children in the Christian faith, and maybe they're drifting away or falling away. The parent worries about it. The parent struggles with that mentally and emotionally. That's the struggle, the tentatio. Paul Stevenson mentioned that's also the case of a Christian pastor. Pastors worry over the flock. Pastors are concerned when people drift away and they don't see them in God's house. Pastors worry about the spiritual welfare of their people. That's the tentatio of the pastor. There is a tentatio for every vocation. It may be that that is what Paul is referring to. His tentatio 
in being the man that he feels he is responsible for people that have heard the gospel, especially Gentiles, and when they're having problems, he's having a problem. When they're listening to false voices, he's worried. That may be the kind of suffering Paul's going through here. We don't know, but it would be a very good way to look at it. Now, each of us has a vocation, and it's whatever it is. You have your times of prayer, meditation of God's Word, and the struggle that the Christian life causes for you in living your everyday life. And everybody has it. Comes with the territory. But that is why it is so important for us to hear the word. And that's what's going to be emphasized in chapter 2. So let's start with chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, interesting that the word for struggle here is actually the word for contest. In other words, he's contested in his mind over what they're going through. Notice it's for those in Laodicea, that was a neighboring town also. And for all who have not seen me face to face. When Paul set up his ministry, and we see it in places in the New Testament, he was not always traveling. At times, he would stay in one place and teach extensively. We think that's probably what's happening, what happened, and that's why the word went to Colossae and Laodicea and other regions around Ephesus. He would teach in Ephesus, and people would hear him and go to these regions. And we know that Epaphras did that. He's mentioned in chapter 1. But Paul did not know these people personally. Paul did not have a personal relationship with these people beyond the gospel. But he is still very concerned about them and struggles over them that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Knit together in love. The, the, the implication is that they're being united. Okay? They're being united together in love. Even though he has not seen them, they are being united in love and to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding 
to reach all the riches of full assurance. He's just multiplying how thorough Christ is. Now, we're going to notice in the next verses that Paul does not set out point by point to review, to refute what these false teachers are saying. He does not do that. That would be a negative approach. He goes at it in a positive approach. And that positive approach is he is going to show them just how complete and perfect the knowledge of Christ is. Don't listen to these guys because this is far better. That will be the way he comes at it. Not trying to refute every point by the Old Testament or by the gospel, but the gospel is thorough, and that's the true knowledge. So, reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Christ is going to be the way he deals with all this. He's going to show them how far superior Christ is to everything they're hearing without going through it point by point. Okay. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, in that day and age, and in Gnosticism that we talked about, the search for wisdom was primary. The search for wisdom was primary. By Paul saying that all the wisdom is hidden in Christ, he is saying, if you're looking for wisdom in other places, you're not going to find it. You're going to find true wisdom in Christ Jesus and nowhere else. I say this in order that no one may delude, it's actually deceive you with plausible arguments. You can also translate that persuasive speech by persuasive speech. That's what they're hearing. And again, he just mentions this as a whole. He's not talking about specific things that they've heard. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Okay, so that's, that's the struggle he's going through. I don't know you, but I'm with you. I realize you're hearing these things, and I want to help you get past this. But you're not going to get past it by seeking wisdom in the things of this world. You're only going to get past it if you look to Christ 
because all true wisdom, Christ is all true wisdom. Don't look any place else. Don't look any place else. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, received. That's an important term in the New Testament because it means you're receiving from a proper authority. The word implies that you're receiving what Jesus Christ taught through his apostles. You are receiving it. And therefore, it is from a proper authority. And that's going to be important here in a few moments. Okay? So walk in him. Walk in him. The word walk there is uh, the, the verb tense says it, it's an imperative. Do it. But it's also present. You're supposed to be doing it all the time. It's not a one-time thing. Because you receive Christ, your life is now different, and you are to walk in him all the time, every day. It does not have a, an end to it. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Now, Again, this is emphasizing he was taught, they were taught by the proper authority. Paul would say himself through others. And this wasn't something that was made up. This is what Jesus Christ taught through the apostles. That is why they're rooted and built up and established in their faith. You cannot be rooted, built up, and established without the Word of God. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen through other forms of wisdom. It's not going to happen except through the Word of God. Abounding in thanksgiving. Now, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The actual words here not according to the tradition of men. Now, that's very important. And we don't do this a lot, but we're going to look at another passage today. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 7. And this is Jesus himself teaching. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, 
they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, let me comment here. The tradition of the elders is not referring to what's in the Old Testament. This is what Jewish rabbis had written that should be done, but it's not necessarily based on what was said in the Old Testament, except very loosely, the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not at least eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vestibules, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now go back to Colossians. It is not insignificant here that Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men. In other words, what men have thought up, what men are trying to force upon you, and it's not necessarily, it isn't what God's Word actually says. It's what's been thought up by men, and then, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, that particular word, and you don't have to look it up, I'll, I'll read it to you, is from Galatians chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So the question becomes, what are the elementary principles of the world that are mentioned in both Galatians and Colossians? They're basically things that have come about that people put their hope in or that people believe. 
but they're not from God. Okay? They're not necessarily from God. Man-made religion may be an excellent translation. And of course, what we think is not necessarily the truth. So, the elemental spirits could also refer to evil angels and their ranks and their attempts to deceive us. It may refer to what we heard, have heard from others, and simply without testing it out, believe it. It's everything floating around that's not true. Now, Paul does not want them to listen. He calls it deceit. The traditions of man and the elemental spirits of the world. And he compares that. And not according to Christ. So, in other words, all these things, it's not of Christ. And therefore, Paul would say, it's not true wisdom. It's not true wisdom. You may be following things, but again, as I told you, he's not refuting each point. He's just saying, this is better. This is where true wisdom is. Christ. As he says in 1 Corinthians, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When wisdom is talked about in Proverbs chapter 8, if you read the description of wisdom, you say, this is Jesus. Okay? Because he is true wisdom. So he's saying, don't listen to these other things. How many other things do you hear in a day? On the radio? On the TV? On the news? We're bombarded with it. We'll just call them the elementary principles of the world. We are bombarded with it. Paul is telling us, if you want true wisdom, then it's found in Jesus Christ. Whatever you hear may sound true, may sound good, but you have to test it against what Christ says. That's right. Not just spiritual. That's right. That's why uh, Galatians says elemental principles. It is not just... Uh, spiritual, it is worldly. It is everything that sets itself against Christ. That's really how you could define it. Everything that sets itself against Christ. And we hear that constantly. Constantly. All right. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, that's already been said in chapter 1, but we're going to look at it again because this is a little different. The fullness of deity 
the word he chose there makes it absolutely unequivocal, this is God. This is not somebody like God, this is God. Second, dwells is again a present verb, which means from conception forever. Jesus Christ did not leave being true man on this earth. If he did, his bodily his body would not have risen, wouldn't have been in the tomb. He didn't leave his humanity behind. He's still true God and true man. This is the argument that blows the Colossian heresy and Gnosticism out of the water. Because God is considered perfect, he is a spirit. All humanity is considered material and is evil. God would never dwell in a human body because it is by nature evil. That's what the Gnostics would say. By Paul affirming that that's exactly what he did, that puts an end to Gnosticism. Jesus Christ did not indwell in something evil. Now you say, well, we are evil. Yes, but we weren't made that way. When God created us, when God created Adam and Eve, we were perfect. Sin corrupted us. Christ has conquered sin, and when we get to heaven, we're going to be perfect again. We are not evil forever. And it was never God's intention for us to be evil. That's why he sent his son to restore us to the way he wanted us and made us in the first place. So Jesus Christ was perfect man apart from he had no sin. When he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, it was perfect man without the sin. The Holy Spirit separated the sin from the seed so he would be true man but without sin. Without sin. Now, this implies several things. First, this is the description then of the incarnation. It also reminds us of what Hebrews talks about that he can sympathize with us because he was tempted as we are. He's still true man. He's still true man. It also emphasizes that not only is he true man, 
is true God because it says there the whole fullness of deity. He is not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% man in the same person. Okay? In the same person. This is a critical verse. Okay? A critical verse because it's pointing out to us that Jesus Christ is true man and true God. And what a better time to talk about that than Christmas when we celebrate the Incarnation. For Martin Luther, the Incarnation was every bit as important as the Resurrection because he had to be true man to save us. So it was critical to Luther that he was willing to become man. That was the great humiliation of God, that God would, have, would assume the form of a creature, of one of the things that he made in order to save us. Now, so the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. All right, so if you're looking for true wisdom, you can stop right here. Because not only is he wisdom, he has all authority over everything there is. It's kind of like a commercial. You can't go wrong with Jesus. Okay? Can't go wrong with Jesus. He just keeps exalting Christ. Just keeps exalting Christ. All right, now. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what are we talking about here? What's he talking about? He is not talking about circumcision. He is talking about baptism. Okay. He is talking about baptism. A baptism not made with hands, human hands. It is Christ's baptism. He is talking about the fact that we were baptized. Okay? The emphasis on not made with hands is it's not man's doing. When we baptize babies, yeah, the pastor puts the water on in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it is God doing the baptism. The pastor is just an intermediary doing what God wants done. What is really going on there 
is baptism by God. We do not put any emphasis on anything the water and the word. Not the pastor. Pastor are, pastors are imperfect people. I've used this before. I have baptized so many babies and been through the order so many times. While I'm doing it, it's an honor. I can still be thinking about what's for lunch. Okay? Because I'm a human being. And it doesn't depend on me. It depends on God. And he's promised that in that water and word, he comes to that child and gives them the gifts that Jesus Christ won for him. So that's the emphasis of a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision of Christ, again, by baptism of Christ. So we put off, we put off the old and put on the new. There was a tradition in the early church that when you were baptized, you took off the garment you were baptized in and put on a new clean garment, signifying that you were a new person in Christ. You are a new person. Having been buried with him in baptism, okay, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I want to notice, I want you to notice how many times the phrases in him and with him are used in this section. The emphasis here is that you are now joined with Christ. Remember, in Romans, you were baptized in the cross. You have put on Christ in Galatians. The emphasis of these prepositional phrases, you are now joined to Christ. Christ is in you. Christ is with you because you are baptized into his death, putting off the old, and into his resurrection, He is in you and with you. It is a mysterious union of all Christians with Christ. He is the head. We are the members. It happened at baptism. Okay? You were buried with him. When he was buried, you were buried. You were united with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him, okay? You have been united with him at baptism. When he rose, you rose, okay? In which you were also raised with him 
through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul is saying, okay, here we have Christ. He is true wisdom. He is, has all authority. He rules all things. And you're united with him. And he is in you. It's a glorious line of thought. The Gnostics, they were saying, well, you know, your body's evil and you have to do all these things that we're going to get to that. There's all these things you need to be doing. But here Paul says, by baptism, you're united with Christ, does not depend on you. He died, you died. He rises from the dead, you rise from the dead. And the emphasis here is not just on eternal life. The resurrection is a fact. You are already resurrected. You're already resurrected. You are living the resurrected life right now. Eternal life is yours. You're going to heaven. And it's already yours. Okay? It's already yours. It's not like you don't have it. And then when you die, you get it. You have it now. Okay? You have it now. And notice... The emphasis, again, it was a circumcision made without hands. And then at the end it says, it is in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, this has occurred by the work of God. Notice there's no mention of anything that we participate or do. Nothing. It is God who has done it for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay, another one. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. There's the with him again, this mystical union, okay, made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, okay? So the forgiveness of sins is the establishment of this relationship that everything that was within us that stood between God and us has been removed, has been removed, and then it goes on by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Okay. It's actually the word bond. Okay. The bond has been removed. Okay. From the powerful, from the from the legal demands. That's the law. 
if you read enough of Luther, you see that he lists sin, death, and Satan as the enemy. He also lists the law. The law is an enemy because it condemns us. This is what's being said here. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and the legal demands of the law were death. By breaking the law, you earned that punishment. That legal bond that stood against you has been removed has been removed and then it tells you how this he set aside nailing it to the cross your sins were nailed to the cross your sentence of death was nailed to the cross all of that has been taken care of by jesus christ each and every bit of it. Now let's finish this section. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. In Rome, there was a tradition that when the Roman army conquered another army, they would parade them through town. They disarmed them. They humiliated them. They stripped them of their outer clothing. They other, utterly humiliated them, marching in front of the Roman legions. The words here imply that's what Christ does with the enemies that opposed us. Said death and Satan, Satan and all his hosts. He parades them disarmed, toothless, the toothless tiger, his victory. Now, when did this happen? Well, interesting. It could have been when he descended into hell. Because he descended into hell to proclaim his victory. Not to suffer, but to proclaim his victory. And he may have paraded his enemies, including Satan and all his evil hosts, in front of him as disarmed and defeated. We don't know for sure, but it makes a good story. Sounds fun. Okay? Sounds fun. And he put them to open shame. In other words, he shamed them. Triumphing over them in him. Now, some of your translations may say, triumphing over them by the cross. It depends. There's a textual variant there. But whether it says him or the cross, the emphasis is the same. Okay. The emphasis is the same. That he has put an end to this. He has put an end to this. All right. I've done all the talking today. Questions? That's right.
Okay. So the creed is broken in to two parts on the article of Jesus Christ. There is the state of humiliation. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. That's his state of humiliation. Okay. Then some people want to say, so is the descent to hell, because he went to suffer hell for us. The language of the New Testament in 1 Peter, where this is talked about, won't allow it. And, and people always wonder why it's so necessary to understand the biblical languages. The word is, Jesus descended into hell, and he proclaimed the victory. He proclaimed the good news. That's what the Greek words mean. He didn't go there to suffer. He went there to proclaim the victory. Therefore, the exaltation begins with the descent into hell, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, judge the living and the dead. That's the state of exaltation. Yes. That is in 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 and 19. Okay. He preached to them, only it specifically states he preached the good news. Okay. That he had conquered death and hell. So it's part of the state of exaltation, not part of the state of humiliation. That's your eighth grade catechism lesson for today. Okay? Yes, but. Yes, yes. The, the, the charges against people, that's why they were nailed. Okay? That the charges were being taken care of by nailing them to the cross. So your charges were being taken care of by Jesus. He is your substitute when you were nailed, when he was nailed to the cross. Yes. That was his sin. According to the Jewish authorities, his sin was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Right. Only he was. Okay. They thought it was sin. Too bad for you. Okay. All right. Dignity on us. Correct. The humiliation was that God would come down. The humiliation was not that he became a uh, true man because he was saying, we're going to restore true man to the way God meant him to be. And he humiliated himself by being willing to step down. Okay. Willing to step down. All right. Our time is up. We will continue chapter two. Remember that next week will be our last one until after uh, Christmas. We meet again on January the 2nd. Okay. 
So the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.